Melody. Melody. You are listening to the Cannabis Consult Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jamie Caroon. This podcast takes an in-depth look into the rich and rapidly evolving field of medical cannabis. Each episode features an interview with a figure who is seeking to legitimize the use of this plant as medicine and make a difference in patients' lives. All feedback is welcome. Email jamie at centerformedicalcannabis.com. Thanks for your time. Jersey, big up, big up. Yeah. My guest in this episode is Michelle Sexton. Dr. Sexton is a naturopathic doctor and clinical researcher at UCSD, that's the University of California at San Diego. Dr. Sexton has presented her research internationally and published in several peer reviewed journals. Her clinical practice, research, and teaching focus is on the endocannabinoid system and how to modulate that system to promote health and treat disease. I have broken up our conversation into two parts or two podcasts. In part one, we discuss the endocannabinoid system and immunity. And in part two, we discuss the endocannabinoid system and female reproduction with a focus on medical cannabis and women's health conditions. This is part one of our conversation. Okay, Michelle, this conversation has been a long time coming. I've wanted to get you on the podcast for a while now, over a year. And I want to just start out with a bit of an introduction. Can you tell us a bit about what you do now and how you got there? Well, thanks for having me, Jamie. I'm really excited about talking with you on on the topic of the endocannabinoid system and in different aspects. So um, I'm currently practicing medicine in San Diego, California. I have uh, an independent clinical practice where I see patients. Um, I'm also uh, assistant adjunct professor in the Department of Anesthesiology at UCSD, uh, which seems like a bit of an oxymoron for a naturopathic doctor to be in the Department of Anesthesiology. So the way I ended up there was that um, I developed a relationship with the director of the pain division who was um, actively employing cannabis in his patient population to help patients control pain and ultimately wean off of opioids. So we developed a collaborative relationship, and he eventually brought me into the department And so I just provide um, education across departments at UCSD, um, and my practice is largely referral-based from UCSD, specifically people uh, and their doctors agreeing that cannabis might be a good therapeutic option for them, and then I provide them guidance. So that's part of what I do. My other role at UCSD is research. So we have several research projects in process. Uh, One is a retrospective chart review, uh, looking at the patients seen in the pain department who did and did not receive cannabis authorizations and guidance on using cannabis for opioid tapering. And then we have another one, which is a clinical study where it was a single blood draw. And um, we're uh, in the process of... uh, extracting and looking at the entire genome, but specifically we're going to be looking at RNA in patients with chronic pain and those who do and do not respond or Im- respond to or employ cannabis and opioids. So it's sort of a biomarker study. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is um, looking at the effects of 
inhaled cannabis for acute migraine treatment. Wow, that's a lot. And don't you have some experience working in the lab at the University of Washington as well? Yeah, so my background there um, after my ND degree, uh, at the end of that, I wrote uh, what's called a fellowship, uh, an F32 to the National Institutes of Health, and proposed a study and got funded for a fellowship that I did at the University of Washington. So I had been working there as a pre-doctoral fellow and then had a full-time position for three years as a postdoctoral fellow. And that was in the lab of Dr. Nephi Stella, where we were studying really primarily the CB2 receptor. Um, and so I think we might talk more about that later and its role in um, the immune response. And we were really looking at the role of the CB2 receptor in the brain and neuroinflammation and different um, diseases uh, that, you know, impact the brain and the inflammation in the brain and how the CB2 receptor plays a role in that. Well, maybe since we're talking about that, we should start down that road. So we're recording this in early April 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic, and everyone is talking about supporting your immune system, strengthening your immune system. You know, what role does the endocannabinoid system play so the, the CB2 receptor isn't talked about as much as the CB1 receptor. What, what do we know about the CB2 receptor and its role in inflammation or anti-inflammation? Well, I think, I think that's a great point that you make. Um, just in general, you know, a lot of the research has more been focused on the effects of THC at the CB1 receptor and um, so, you know, that whole body of research is, is quite large. And then if you go and look at the CB2 receptor, um, which is primarily expressed in immune cells and immune tissues, uh, I think you'd see by comparison, there's a lot less data there. Um, there is a significant body of data, however, because the endocannabinoid system is considered to be a gatekeeper of the immune system. And so it does raise questions about, um, you know, how cannabis may affect desired immuno immunological reactions. I think a lot of the immune-focused research, you know, has been on the uh, therapeutic potential for chronic inflammation and autoimmune disease, whereas, you know, there's, uh, there's much less, um, except in the earlier literature, of potential negative effects of cannabis uh, specifically acting through the CB2 receptor because THC binds both of those receptors as agonists. And when it does bind to the CB2 receptor or whether it's THC or any other molecule that activates that CB2 receptor, what happens? Um, so in general, it's an, it's an anti-inflammatory uh, reaction. So if you remember when we were studying immunology, I remember chronic inflammation being talked about. And I also remember that we weren't really given any clear indication of how the body actually um, controls inflammation. You know, we were, I remember being told, well, you know, inflammation's normal, but it's when it becomes chronic that it's a problem. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't get turned off. Well, what's turning it off? And it turns out that it's the endocannabinoid system that is a major player in that. And 
Um, it's probably not a system in its own that's sufficient by itself to totally suppress inflammation, but it is a big player. So to, in the same way that it's regulating uh, neuronal transmission as a negative feedback loop um, via CB1 receptor in the brain through neurons, similar type of mechanism with the CB2 receptor uh, that ligating that receptor or an agonist activating that receptor activates um, negatively regulates the NF-kappa-beta pathway, um, activating the MAP kinase pathway. There's also the JAK-STAT pathway that gets down-regulated by agonism of the CB2 receptor. Yeah, and so for the listeners who aren't as well-versed in science, um, so when these molecules bind to the CB2 receptor on immune cells like mast cells or macrophages, for example, which are white blood cells, it can lead to a reduction in the the production and secretion of inflammatory chemicals like TNF-alpha, like IL-6, like interferon gamma, et cetera. And we have, some, we have some decent data to demonstrate or to substantiate that. Is that correct? Yeah, there, there's actually quite a lot of data on that. And um, I like that you brought up TNF-alpha because... Um, if we think about the endocannabinoid system, you know, as a, as a network and, you know, with any biological system or within our biology, there's always, you know, networks of crosstalk going on across different systems. And so there was an analysis done of the endocannabinoid system network. So this was uh, research uh, by Mauro Macarone in Italy where they just went to the literature, they pulled all of the papers, you know, that, that talked about effector systems and crosstalk with endocannabinoids. And it turns out that um, TNF-alpha was really highly ranked in terms of its activity and association with the endocannabinoid system. And this is primarily through macrophages. So you already, you already talked about macrophages and, um, so there's, you know, all of this endocannabinoid network uh, and system activation in immune tissues and immune cells. And we know that activation of this network can potentially induce immunosuppression, which, like we were saying, could be good in some situations and undesired another, like acute inflammation by uh, acute infection by a virus or a bacteria. Right. So this is an interesting point here. So immune suppression is a phrase that you hear commonly when people talk about the effects of cannabinoids on the immune system. And so in one sense, we're talking about suppressing the inflammatory response, and that might be good in one context, and it might be harmful in another context, right? Because inflammation is part of the normal healing process, and we don't want to suppress it early because then something might not heal. But if it's chronic, we may want to suppress it in order to reduce the, the signs and symptoms and to, to help blunt the pathophysiology. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a pretty delicate balance, you know, and it's um, we know, you know, that there's individual genetics that are contributing to, you know, just response to infection. So that could be, um, you know, the TNF alpha molecule itself. It could be our uh, immunohistocompatibility complex one or two molecules that are co-activators. 
Um, it could be, you know, the CB2 receptor itself and its function. So, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all um, scenario when we're talking about the immune response. And the same way for the endocannabinoid system and how somebody um, may respond to cannabis in terms of it um, being more or less immunosuppressive in, in individuals. Right. So we should also probably point out that we described this model where a molecule was binding to a CB2 receptor on a white blood cell, and it was reducing the production and secretion of inflammatory chemicals by that white blood cell. And CBD doesn't actually activate CB1 or CB2 receptors, yet there are studies that show that CBD can also reduce the production and secretion of these inflammatory mediators. And some some data, I, I guess, in animals shows that CBD may actually activate the CB2 receptor, but that's somewhat controversial and it hasn't been demonstrated in humans. Is is that your understanding? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the, the data is pretty weak um, as far as CBD directly being an effector on the endocannabinoid system. Um, we used to have a joke in our lab about the CB2 receptor that uh, it didn't exist because it was so difficult to measure. There has never been a really great monoclonal antibody that didn't have a lot of cross-reactivity for the CB2 receptor. And we have that for the CB1 receptor, and that's really advanced uh, you know, the ability to study that receptor. Whereas not having this great uh, molecular marker to measure expression uh, really has, you know, inhibited the ability to study the CB2 receptor well. And then, you know, there's not, there's not great, I wouldn't say there's amazing methods for studying binding. You know, radio ligand binding is sort of the gold standard. Um, but, you know, how effective is that? You get different results across different laboratories. And so, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think the data is really strong about CBD activating the CB2 receptor. Well, we also know that CBD interacts with all these other uh, proteins in the body. And so perhaps it's actually not using a cannabinoid receptor at all when it is demonstrated to reduce these inflammatory chemicals. Maybe it's using a different mechanism or a different receptor. Yeah. I mean, we know it binds to TRIP-V1, which, you know, is considered to be in the endocannabinoid family or network. Um, it's not a huge player um, as, as defined by that network study that I was talking about. It wasn't in the top eight nodes that were highly connected, but, you know, it's definitely there. And, you know, ligating that um, receptor has, has been an approach for in inflammation in different models. Yeah, that maybe for the listeners that aren't familiar, that TRIP-V1 receptor is a, a ion channel. It allows positively and negatively charged molecules to go in and out when it's open. And it's also been described as the capsaicin receptor because capsaicin is the molecule in chili peppers that also has been demonstrated to activate that receptor. And, and products, uh, topical products and others are sometimes uh, combined with capsaicin to try to reduce uh, pain and inflammation. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we know that um, immune cells actually express both CB1 and CB2 receptor. Um, so one of the first papers that I published during my postdoc um, where we were just looking at, so we, we took human blood, we isolated the monocyte cells. So, you know, the monocyte cells are, they're important. You know, they're some of the first responders in an infection. And, you know, part of their role is to go phagocytose, the invader, and then they, they're an antigen-presenting cell, so they're going to activate, you know, further activate the immune system in a, in a viral infection, specifically um, Th1 cells are the ones that are, that are going to be the major players, although, you know, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of crosstalk going on. You can't really simplify the immune system. So in this uh, first study, we just did uh, a, a cell, a model of immune migration where we have a chamber and you load the, the monocytes into the chamber. In the bottom of the chamber, you put a chemoattractant uh, and then you measure, you know, how many cells are migrating toward that chemoattractant. And so we, do, we showed that people who were uh, cannabis users had about a 50% reduction in immune cell migration. And so that's, you know, that's one factor in, in immune suppression is that these immune cells have to get to the site. And so that's, that's been replicated in other studies where THC was shown to inhibit cell migration to the lungs in an influenza uh, infection in animals. So we, we want those cells there, and cannabis may slow down that movement. And then we also measured um, through messenger RNA uh, or total RNA, uh, which is a proxy for, you know, exactly how much protein is there. But again, we didn't have antibody for CB2. So, uh, and we showed that cannabis users actually had an upregulation of the CB1 receptor and a bit of a downregulation of CB2 receptor. Um, so... We don't know exactly what this means, but it shows that in humans, not only in cell culture models or in animals, that cannabis is modulating the immune system. Right. And in this time of COVID-19, when people are wondering if cannabis could be helpful or harmful, you just described two different types of experiments that show immune suppression, so white blood cells, monocytes not migrating as much uh, with regard to cannabis users versus non-users, and then RNA and showing potentially a reduction in the number of antibodies that are being produced in cannabis users. And so what is your take here? Obviously, there's some claims that CBD and other products can um, can treat COVID-19 and, and most people I, I hope are realizing that we don't really have good data to substantiate those types of claims, but what kind of guidance are you giving patients with regard to cannabinoids and COVID-19? Um, for patients that are using, so when I, when I think about cannabis use and um, so I've been working on the American herbal pharmacopoeia um, therapeutic compendium again. And so I realized that, you know, a huge body of the literature is really talking about adult use, you know, people who just smoke cannabis for pleasure or recreation. And that kind of dosing can be really, really different from what I chose for this document to call therapeutic dosing. 
And so most of the studies, for instance, there's an animal study looking at influenza. Um, They used a really, really high dose. So I think in that animal study, it was 10 milligrams per kilogram of THC. And so that that was shown to, um, you know, impair the immune response and also uh, increase the viral load, actually, by diminished recruitment of macrophages and lymphocytes to the lungs. And um, so I think it's important for patients to understand that, you know, if they're using cannabis at at therapeutic dosing levels, and I generally consider that to be really very low THC dosing, sometimes under one milligram, you know, per dose, or five milligrams and less, um, that there's potentially not this potent immunosuppression going on that, that we have definitely demonstrated at higher dosing. And so this, this is another example of you know, the biphasic effects of the cannabinoids that, you know, at a higher dose, is it um, antagonizing the receptor? You know, there's not enough research to know about these biphasic effects on the immune system. We mostly have data on these high doses and the effects of the immune system. So I, so for my patients, I, I haven't had any patients, you know, calling, being concerned about this. Um, I'm not particularly worried about them. There could be patients that are at risk and we, we don't know, you know, those patients that are already at risk, cardiovascular disease. Um, I've, I've wondered about people on like TNF alpha blockers. You know, we, we're seeing more and more patients on those kinds of drugs for different conditions. Um, and the role, you know, the role of TNF alpha is, it's, it's multifactorial. I mean, it's there to, one, one thing that it does is it induces clotting in the area of infection, and that's to wall off infection. Uh, TNF-alpha plays a role in cytotoxic T cells coming in to actually kill, you know, the cells infected by the virus. Um, so we, we really need this TNF-alpha, you know, in the beginning of an infection. And whether or not, you know, these low doses of, of cannabis or THC or CBD are affecting that, we don't know because we just don't have that data. One phrase that keeps coming up in mainstream media is cytokine storm. Can you explain what a cytokine storm is? Um, I'm not really an immunologist, so I don't know that I can, but I think it could be compared maybe to what happens um, in in the situation of sepsis, for instance. So sepsis occurs, you know, when TNF-alpha can't do its job, the, the complement um, cascade and, um, you know, this clotting that can occur to slow spread. Um, you know, if that, if that is not effective and you get widespread inflammation that is unchecked, um, then, you know, there's just an overload of these cytokines in the system. And that's typically related to um, bacterial, you know, a co-infection with a bacteria after a virus. And so the interesting thing about sepsis is that's one situation where we know that the levels of the endocannabinoids go higher than in any other situation that we know of in humans. And so it's just an example that the 
the endocannabinoid system is trying to bring everything back to homeostasis in the immune response. And so, you know, whether it's effective or not is, is very highly individual, I'm sure. Um, and, and sepsis is an infection that gets into the blood, right? If it's a viral infection, we call it viremia. If it's a bacterial infection, we call it bacteremia. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we want, you know, we, the, the immune system just has to stay in balance. The endocannabinoid system is there to do that. If we're suppressing endocannabinoid function uh, through heavy cannabis use, um, you know, could that be a player in how we respond to this virus, you know, at an initial infection and alter the course of the virus. Or I guess ancillary, do chronic marijuana smokers have a higher risk for respiratory complications? Oh, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I, in, in clinical practice, you know, I, I have never counseled people to smoke cannabis, um, vaporization of cannabis, you know, is safer for the lungs, but we don't even know, you know, there's not enough data on vaporization of the cannabis flower to know, you know, whether it induces some of the immunological changes in the lungs or not similar to smoking. The It's funny, a lot of people don't even know you can actually vaporize the flower. They just assume that what the, the form is that is vaporized is oil. I know. I know. People are, are less aware that, um, yeah, I have patients say that all the time. Well, I don't, I'm not going to smoke it. And I, I said, we would never ask you to smoke it. Um, but there, you know, there is a potentially safer way than smoking or not using concentrated forms like in the e-cigarettes, uh, which we know is also very harmful to the lungs, um, that, you know, we at this point in time, we know uh, activates the immune system to a lesser degree than smoking. And then you're also avoiding all of those byproducts of combustion that are so harmful to the lungs. Right. So let's wrap up this topic by agreeing that if you're out there wondering whether cannabinoids are going to protect you from COVID-19 or perhaps reduce the frequency or severity of the symptoms associated with COVID-19, there's really no data in human beings to suggest that that's the case. Would you agree with that statement? Yes, I agree with that. All right. For more of my conversation with Michelle, check out part two of our podcast, which talks about the endocannabinoid system and the female reproductive system with a special focus on medical cannabis and women's health conditions. Thanks again for listening to the Cannabis Consult. To listen to more episodes, please visit CannabisConsultPodcast.com. To learn more about me, Dr. Jamie Caroon, visit CenterForMedicalCannabis.com. Thanks for your time. Jersey, big up, big up, big up, big up, big up.